All right. How's it going today, Scott? Doing well. Switching it up a little bit. I'm, I'm a bit on the hot seat today, so I'm looking forward to it. And it's also Friday before vacation, which makes it a little bit sweet. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, we're without Adam today. So for those listening that love Adam's interjections and commentary, you'll be you'll not have a great time, but you will have a great time because we have actually a guest to help us interview Scott. Rebecca Lombardo, welcome back. Uh, you've been on a previous episode. People can go out and check out that episode, the 100 collection, if they want a little bit more about you. But thank you for joining us and uh, putting Scott on the hot seat together with me. It's gonna be fun. Glad to be here. Glad to do this. Awesome. I didn't actually, I think you told me a story a while ago. We have a whole outline. I'll try to go through some of these questions that we have here on my side, Scott. But didn't you share with me a while ago that you guys had previously interacted before the like the vacational industry? How did that come to be? So we didn't interact. My guess is we probably did pass pretty close to each other. So yeah, Rebecca and I were on a call. Oh, it was about Casago. Okay. So just a general call about Casago and some stuff she was working on there. And as we were talking, we realized that we probably lived less than 20 miles apart and frequented a lot of the exact same spots. So it was a surreal moment. And for a guy that does terrible at networking and interacting with people, it was just one of those moments where pretty wild. And I think it tells a story about our industry, right? And how close we all really are. Yeah. Yeah. So Rebecca, you never knew Scott when you were younger and made fun of him (laughs) or bullied him or anything like that, right? No, but I think I would have because I think we may have been at rival high schools. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> there the, uh, there'd be a little bit of tension there. That, that's actually funny. When I moved, Scott, I grew up in Massachusetts. I moved to South Carolina. I was still in high school. So I came to a new high school. I was 17 years old and I thought I knew nobody. And no lie, I walked in and I met someone from the high school that I went to in Massachusetts that had moved down to the South Carolina. And I was like, what are the odds? Her name was Clarissa. That's she was crazy. super nice to me about the whole situation. And it, luckily, I met someone early in that in my high school experience who was in the same situation as me. He moved from Virginia down to South Carolina, didn't know anybody. And of course, we became friends and we were friends for like a decade after that because of that one interaction that we had. Yeah, it's good to know someone, at least have one little foothold into into things before you get going. Yeah, I would love to go into things. Like I said, this is more of the Scott show. Maybe we'll call that the title of that maybe the Scott show and how we title it. But a lot of people, we did little intros back maybe way back on episode one. We might've talked a little bit about you and Adam and how we all got connected, but this is more of a deeper dive. I would just maybe like to start Scott with, can you tell us a song that describes yourself? Now you have to pick a second song that describes yourself because we've already done this, I think with you. So we'll bring that back. And how did you get started in the short-term rental industry? What brought you into it? Yeah, I finally get to be like Adam, where I get to add a second song, except he's going to now add a third yes, song, so I'm still going to be behind. So for me, it's rough, but I'm, I go back to the same singer as the first one. So I'm a Drake White fan, and I've got a sentimental connection to Drake White. It was a concert that my daughter and I went to, my oldest daughter went to, really early. We saw Drake White, Eric Church, and Brantley Gilbert in the old, small UCF arena, before UCF was actually a large school front row. So it was this big, meaningful moment for my daughter and I, and it was a cool thing for her. Her and I still talk about it. But Drake White has some great songs. So my first one was 50 Years Too Late. And and my second one, I'm going the same guy and it's Simple Life, right? And for me, it's just that I enjoy the simple things, right? I'm not a, for me, it's family, right? And just nice, simple things. I don't want for much. I don't chase much. I'm not really after a lot of fame and glory. For me, it's just taking pride in what I do and living a good, simple life. So I got to stick with Drake White. I wish I was getting pay for him for uh, continuing to tout his music, but love that yeah. one. No, that that's good. I think it's it's good to have your favorites. If, if I ever get a second question, I have to think about that for a minute and try to come up with a different <laughs> artist or something because we all have our favorites that we like to listen to the most, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think my question was how you got started, but I actually want to, I'm going to take that back and I'm going to prepend something to it right. before we go there, because I think you shared on previous episodes and I wasn't really aware of this before, even just you mentioning in passing that you were previously in like the airline industry. So how did, was that the jump straight from the airline industry into short-term rentals or was there something else between or? Yeah, no. So it was airline industry into the private sector. So for me, I worked in restaurants growing up. So had a job when I was 13 back in, in New York, started at International House of Pancakes and washed dishes, moved to Florida and essentially moved. As we moved, I started at the International House of Pancakes there. Same thing, did dishes, worked in the kitchen and then moved to the airline industry with Delta, which was a big move back in 93. It was one of the coveted jobs and then worked my way through the airline industry and really did well. It was a lot of going back and forth between Orlando and Atlanta, right? Back in those days, in order to be anything in the airline industry, you had to go through the hub and for Delta, that was Atlanta. So moved back and forth. I think in total between Delta and AirTran, I moved between Orlando and Atlanta. I think it was 11 times in total. But love the airline industry. Delta was, I don't know that I took a lot from Delta as far as super valuable, positive learning experiences. I think most of my time with Delta was a lot of how not to do things, right? Delta was made up of really hardcore, good old boy networks. So you had to be in with the right people in order to really move effectively or move quicker. And which is something that I never really fell into. Got the opportunity to go to AirTran through happenstance or recruiter called. And went over to AirTrain, which I really was a pivot point for me. I was able to connect. That was when ValueJet Airlines had to crash down the Ever Everglades. They bought AirTrain so they could drop the ValueJet name. And as they were doing the turnaround, they had tagged me as a guy that could help on the regulatory side with some of the turnaround stuff. So I got to join a bunch of really talented airline executives that took me under their wing. And I really progressed quickly with AirTran. As 2008 hit, everyone calls it something different, right? So for me, it was the fuel crisis, right? It all depends which sector you were in. You had a different, it was a different crisis based on your sector. But for AirTran, we were small, we were doing well, but fuel was wrecking our business. It was destroying us. You know, different than 9-11, and I think we talked about this on a previous episode, with 9-11, it was super tangible. There was no one flying, so it just made sense that you didn't need people. You were pushing an airplane back from the gate with five bags and six people on it, right? So you could feel that things were bad. The fuel crisis was the exact opposite. We were slammed. We were busier than ever. Flights were overbooked. Everything was packed, but we weren't making enough money because fares couldn't keep up with mm -hmm. oil. But for me, my problem was the airlines were consolidating, and I... My college career was two weeks long. It was a great two weeks. I really enjoyed it. But that my worry was I had done exceptionally well in the airlines. I was a key executive at AirTran by the time I was getting ready to leave, but I had no real business perspective. So for me, I had never controlled a P&L. I, I had no real outside of the airline industry experience. So I was stuck. So I made the decision that I needed to go get educated and right and going back to college wasn't on the list of things to do. So I went into the private sector and really this is the jump that I think made a big difference for me. My plan at that point was I would do one year in the private sector and work my way back into the airline industry and I never went back. So I made the jump to a company in Orlando that's in all, was in all kind of hospitality, valet parking, 
We did stuff on cruise ships, but we were the largest customer facing vendor that Disney had in their entire company. We ran the Disney Magical Express. We ran all of the pieces and parts to that, except for the busing. And that really immersed me in the Disney culture in a lot of the service thing, which I think Rebecca and I have a really big tie to. And really that started to set me on the path of customer service. I spent a few years there and that's where I also learned about being an entrepreneur, right? The guy I worked for, Craig, was an amazing guy, but he was he's an entrepreneur. He is a next level entrepreneur, right? So there's a lot of bumps and bruises that come with that. And I didn't understand those bumps and bruises, right? So as I was working through those and learning that I was an entrepreneur, there's a lot that comes along with that didn't come in the handbook, right? The the struggles of an entrepreneur that I couldn't really categorize the loneliness. You guys know, you guys have been around in this and just the stuff that wasn't talked about back then that's really talked about more often now, but ended up leaving there. I spent a plan was to do six months off and just spend time with my daughter. I ended up spending one month off because I was too bored and had to get back to work. But we were at a place that Rebecca knows exceptionally well. Her and I went to New Smyrna Beach every day for two months. Every day we went there. But that was my entrance into short-term rentals. Started looking at job postings, got a little bored, and one came up for a housekeeping and maintenance company for the short-term rental side of the business. And it was in Baltimore, Maryland. And I remember just looking at it, right? I knew enough about Baltimore, but it was a scary thing. What am I going to do? Came up, met with Brad, and he and I had this moment right from the beginning where I knew that I wanted to work with him. And ultimately, within two weeks, now I'm up in Baltimore. I leave Orlando. I'm up in Baltimore, or actually our office is in Glen Burnie. I lived in Annapolis. And I start on my path in short-term rentals, really on housekeeping and maintenance. And from there, things really accelerated for me. I ended up being overseeing a real estate portfolio. So I managed a very large real estate portfolio, all in short-term rentals, either through wholesale, retail, and then a bunch of hotels as well. And then ultimately ended up being president of TAN in 2017, which is where I sit today. And then just recently, earlier this year, I had Casago to the list of short-term rentals. So I got in, got the bug, and then I keep adding to it. Yeah. That's okay, Scott. They say that, not that this is closed, but Tampa is the Baltimore of the South. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard that. I haven't, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's true. So you mentioned when you're working, was it Craig, was it the vendor in Orlando? You mentioned that you got the bug that for entrepreneurialism at that time. Yeah. How did, was it a viral contagion? Like, how did you catch that? (laughs) Yes. So the funny part is the airlines taught me about performance management and service, right? The guy I worked with in the airlines, he was very performance driven and we had work to do at Airtran to perform better so we could get up in the rankings, right? For us, it was, you got to be better at handling bags. You got to do all of these things to get your rankings up, right? For us, the big thing in the airlines was the Department of Transportation, right? They would put out their monthly rankings, which go in USA Today. So you're being graded nonstop on the front page of the travel section in the USA Today. So that was really my my performance focus. And I had proven in the airline industry that I could make anything perform well. It doesn't matter what I was handed, I could make it perform well. When I went over with Craig, again, I had never had P&L experience or any of that stuff. And Craig was hyper growth. We were growing exceptionally fast and we were taking on business after business. So that was my introduction to 
entrepreneurialism, although I didn't know that I really had it in me. It was just me doing performance stuff, right? Oh, take this company and fix it. And I would just do my performance thing. But in that, I was building these mini brands that would sell itself. Because the other thing, Rebecca, is I'm not a, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a terrible sales guy. But what I can do is build something that sells itself, right? When I put it together, it'll sell itself. So ultimately, you've got this really high-functioning entrepreneur, and then you had me with him. So I, as I kept building things, he kept going further and the next thing. And so I, we were this, we kept enabling each other. And really I let that start to run me down quite a bit, but that's when I learned that I was an entrepreneur and that I did enjoy creating things. And I did enjoy building things more than just the fact that I was fixing things before. I feel like there's always the story that people tell and it's they were a child and they started to sell things and that's how they knew they were an entrepreneur. And I've actually, I put this out on LinkedIn a while ago. I actually hate that story because I think what it does is it makes you think that if you didn't do it, then you're not going to be able to do it now or that you're born with it. I don't really think people are born with anything. That's my personal takeaway, at least. Like, I think everything you do, you can learn or you can at least get better at something. Like I was, I remember being terrified of like accounting classes and in college and having to take two of them was like pain and misery for me. Guess who has to run his own books now? This guy. So you have to figure it out whether you like it or not. And that's my takeaways. It sounds like you weren't necessarily, you didn't have that story of, oh, I was born with it, but then you figured it out along yeah. the way. <clears throat> but the, sometimes that's the best way to figure it out. But it's like by doing it, a lot of people I think can read a book and maybe understand how to do something, but a lot of us have to do it. I'm the same way, honestly, Scott. Once I do things for an extended period of time, I can see it. And I feel like I have some similar characteristics. I had to watch people do it. Um, two, two different kind of companies that I was a part of. And then I was like, yep, I now understand it. Boom, I can go out on my own. If I tried that before then, I don't think it would have worked or maybe it would have been a lot less successful than what ended up happening for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, the bumps and bruises that came with it. The funny part is I've been in this period where I've gone back and done a lot of reflecting based where I've been. And it was probably a handful of years ago now where I really started to appreciate what Craig and I did. And what I went through with Craig, right? There was a lot, of, a lot of commuting. I was never around. I was always on the road. I was in Vegas at one point for six months. And I was trying to fly back home from Vegas on Friday night, spend a little time at home, fly back on Sundays, right? So there was this huge toll. And again, at the time, I didn't realize like that's what it's like to build something, right? That's what it's like to truly build something. And as I look back now, things that I was disgruntled about then. I look back, man, the lessons that I took away and the stuff I learned was just super, super valuable. Incre incredible. I, I felt like my experience with that is someone throwing you in to the water and not really knowing how to swim is the, the analogy that I've had it before. And that is when you can learn a lot. Yeah. There's something about being treated with kid gloves that I find can be a little counterproductive. And I try to, with my own team, I try to strike that balance of you can do it. You can figure it out and push them a little bit out of the nest. Some people need that push. Other people don't respond well to that push. So you kind of have to learn people. I'm sure you've learned people as well throughout this process. But is that what it was? You were, ah, you don't really know exactly how to swim, but whatever, you'll figure it out. Was that? Yeah. Yeah. And Craig was... Craig was not an ops guy, right? He was the opposite of an ops guy. And it wasn't small. This guy entrusted me with millions, right? It was, hey, th this is a few million dollars. Hey, this is multi-million dollars. Go do things with it. <laughs> and I was off to the races. Yeah. So fast forward a bit back to the, your story when you got up to the Maryland area and you were working on that. What was your knowledge of housekeeping at that point in time or like that division of the company? How much did you know? Or did you also have to figure it out as you went along? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. I knew zero. I knew zero about housekeeping. I knew zero about maintenance. 
and were you googling we're like how do you how does one do, <laughs> this is pre chat gbt oh, yeah. like how does yeah youtube videos yeah so one of it i i'll say this and this is no lie i called my ex-wife to be like <laughs> i'm running a housekeeping company what do i do like i and i'm not even kidding was she I, helpful <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, she was super helpful. Like I, we even met in some units down in Orlando for her to take a look at things. But I really broke it down to fundamentally, I knew processes, right? And I knew how to build performance, right? So I just took it and said, I don't care what it is. I, I can figure it out. If you go back to my previous experience with Craig, we were I was doing valet parking. I didn't know a thing about valet parking. I know now that if there's a Corvette and a Porsche, and then a Ford Escort, I know which two we're going to wreck and I know which one we're not going to wreck. So there was all kind of things where I've, I had to step into things without experience. And from my perspective, Rebecca, and I actually lean to this, even when I hire people, I have this preference of hiring people that don't have direct experience, but they have the right skill set, knowledge, and most importantly, the drive, because I think when people come in and they have to learn it and figure it out. I think it starts a little bit slow, but I think what they can come out the other end with is far better than someone that knows the business because someone that knows the business has all of the preconceived notions to, oh no, you do this and then you do this and then you do this, where I come in and go, why would you do it that way? And sometimes they would look at me and go, because that's this and then it has to be this way. And then there's, there would be other times they would go, yeah, I'm not really sure. And that's why the Unreasonable Hospitality book talked about hiring not from yes. the, the fancy pants five-star restaurant, right? But you hire from Shake Shack because what you're trying to build is something modern, right? Yeah, huge, huge believer in that. Even today, when I hire someone today, whether they have experience or not, we actually won't train them for the first 30 days. What we do is we come in and on the tan side, we'll give them an overview of the company. It's really the story of the client journey. So we tell them, we take them from the client first signing up all the way through to where they are with us today and what we do. And then we don't tell them anything else and we let them get immersed in the operation, right? Go sit side by side with an agent or in the field, whatever they do. And then we have a checkpoint once a week to say, what did you learn and what questions do you have? And then at day 30, then we send them to training. And it's been an interesting perspective because some of them will come back and go, Hey, what's in the training is not what's happening in the field. Right. So we, we get some benefit there, but they also have such a fresh perspective. Again, they're able to ask questions like that doesn't make sense to me. Why would you do it that way? And when I hire people and certainly what I've been brought into Rebecca is you're hiring people or you're hiring me for a reason, get out of my way or their way and let them bring you their perspective and use, use them for the value that you saw in them. And they're going to solve more problems with People get so immersed in business and especially our business now in the short-term rentals, there's just this set way, right? There's, everyone knows we do this, then you do this, then you do this. But I think we've come to so many crossroads where you can look and say, but do we always have to do it that way? Or is there a way to, to break it up and look at things differently? And I think bringing people in without experience, and I love, and Rebecca, even in that book, I love restaurant people because I think they get so much about business that most people don't. And I think there's a great crossover to short-term rentals, but I think they get so much about business, customer service, and the chaos of constantly turning guests over. I think they come in ready to go 
especially in our so once you got there do you think things were in bad shape like maybe you don't want to bash it publicly but were you brought in because things were in bad shape or you brought it in more so just like someone else moved on and hey we need someone to be in charge yeah no i was brought in because it was in bad shape and the funny part is that's what attracted me to the job post was it was a company in need of a turnaround and you talk about accounting conrad i keep in mind zero accounting experience right i would get pnls by that time, I, I had some experience in P&Ls, but I didn't, I was always building. I wasn't fixing a lot. When I came here, it was, I had to fix and they knew there was problems, but they were doing this thing and I forget where they were called. I think they called it net zero or something, but essentially all they would do is since it was, this company was servicing internal clients, all they would literally do is at the end of the, every month they would look and go, what's the expense? Okay. Let's add the revenue to match the expense and the company nets to zero. So within my first two weeks here, I pulled everything back and built it up and found out that the company, it was in August. So by September, I figured out that the company had lost $700,000 so far that year. Jeez. Yeah. And no one (laughs) knew. No one knew. And I will tell you, there was a couple moments where I was like, I should not get an apartment yet. Like (laughs) things are not okay here. (laughs) Staying in an extended stay hotel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, I may have an issue. But that was when I really started to see that now I was going to get to be turnaround. Plus the only way I could fix it was to grow my way out of it. So then it started to really take my, my history and start to piece it together. Say, okay, you've got to lean on turn around, you've got to provide good service, right? Especially in this business. And then you've got to grow your way out of this. So it was my first real step into saying, you have all these tools, now put them all together and go make it work. Yeah. That- and were you doing the, did you start your short-term real stuff on the side at that time? Or did you make a leap? So I made a leap. So from there it was into short-term rentals with, so it was the investors. And then that was the push in the short-term rentals. So then it became all right, now we can do this short-term rental thing because I understood by that time I had housekeeping and maintenance. I had the investor side as an owner, right? So I knew how to serve and service an owner because I was on the owner side for a while. So I knew here's what I was expecting. Here's what worked best for me. So then I was able to take those things Rebecca, and say, I'm almost all the way there. And I knew the guest experience from, from our old days, Rebecca, right? From that Orlando, living in Orlando, you pick up an aspect of customer service just from living there. So that, that was my push. And right. The only difference for me was I've got this balance that I'm constantly running in life. And I refer to it as wholesale and retail, which can be confusing, right? So I've got travel advantage network, which is essentially a wholesale vacation rental company. These people have contracts that they bought through a sales company and we're here to just fulfill their vacations. We're not in sales. We're not in any of that stuff. We're just a wholesale vacation provider, which essentially means they're just fixed rate. I can't, I'm not playing with dynamic pricing and all that stuff, but it's a very large company. And then it was, there's a lot of synergies to have a short-term rental company that feeds in and those two can really interconnect well. So then that was my step into let's add short-term rentals to this, right? Because for me, it's this flywheel. When you get all of those things together, it builds this ecosystem, right? That just constantly feeds itself. I can use the tan business to really stabilize and have all the best vendors in place, right? And have great turn days. And with tan, I can separate my turn days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then you take this short-term rental company and say, 
Now I can add this. It's a different element, but I've got this already great infrastructure where I can plug into and both feed off of each other. So it was really that ultimate combination of those things to then say, all right, now I'm all in and we're adding short-term rentals to this. And how many properties are you at now? Oh man. So on the tan side, we're over 1200 at one point at our highest on the short-term rental perspective before we sold was around, we were at 350 or so. Right. And now on, on the Casago Del Mar st side, we're getting restarted and we're in the twenties, but we're starting to climb our way back. The only thing I'll say is, and Rebecca, you and I talked about this on the podcast with Travis and Adam, this time I'm going about it different where I'm not just looking to grow numbers, right? I want to service a very specific part of the market and I want it to be the higher end experiences with owners that get it and that want to have a high-end experience and really start to fold in that unreasonable hospitality aspect of it and say, how do we take this product? And, and Rebecca, if, if I had my way, I would have every one of our properties in the 100 collection. That That's the type of portfolio that we're going for. We're not looking for the middle market. We're really looking to be a premier vacation rental. A few episodes back, we talked about rejecting homeowners that weren't a good fit. And then you yeah. joked about it, I think, and said, we we did it. We rejected someone. You want to go there now? It might be a good spot, time to do it. So I know we're missing yeah. the, the other horsemen there, but what was that conversation? <laughs> Let me ask, was it a operational decision to reject said homeowner? Was it a personality thing? What was the reason? Without maybe sharing too much details, if we don't want to put someone on blast, but what was the reason why? And then I want to go back to that comment around, here's the type of property that I want, or type of property I want to manage, because I think I would imagine they tie together. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we did, and again, this is from a, I wanted the business to be very intentional, right? And I want to be intentional with who I work with, right? Through the years, I've had bad partnerships and they never work. And you always see them and you know, they're not going to work, but you still do it anyway, right? Because it's going to get you to some point. So what we did is we developed, and I mean, I went through the whole patent process on this thing and everything. We developed this survey and it's almost like culture index, but it's for owners, right? So we developed a survey and we went through and first we started and we said, from our standpoint, starting with me, what's the most important things that we want an owner to be aligned on, right? So as we look at this, what's most important, right? And we talked about dynamic rates and rate control, but simple things. And Conrad, you and I have talked about it. What's the occupancy? What's the seating, right? All of these things, right? How much is the owner willing to invest every year? We expect the rates to increase improve or increase two to three percent every year even on a bad year we believe for repeat guests you should be continuing to walk the rates up so we built this survey and we got the scoring in place i took it first and then i had the folks working with me also take it and that was our baseline right to say okay here's what's most important for us in the business and i think it's either 12 or 15 questions but what we do is an owner comes in and they have interest we'll talk to them we talk to them a little bit about our program we tell them who we are and then at the end of the day, right before we get into sending them paperwork, we'll say, hey, before we go to the next step, we need you to complete this survey. And all we're doing then is comparing the fit. And again, it's just like culture index. You can look and get the score and say, all the things that are important to us, they're the opposite. Or all of the things that are important to us, we're close and we've got to discuss this thing. The unit we turned away, Conrad, was... They did not consider their unit. One of our questions is, do you consider your property to be a an investment property for a vacation rental, or do you consider it to be your beach home? And I believe that's two very different mindsets. 
and this owner was, this is their beach home and they just wanted someone to, to lease it out in their terms when they're not there. And you look at it and go, that, that, that's not going to provide a professional vacation rental experience. That's renting someone's house. And then they weren't aligned on rate management. And there was another one that they weren't aligned on. So it wasn't easy, but it was easy because we just were able to bounce back and say, Hey, listen, the survey that we took has real value. And it just pinpoints the fact that we're not aligned. And I was actually able to give them the points to say, here's where we're not aligned. So we're not a fit for you. But there's plenty of other people in the market. Thanks. And they, they weren't upset. They were confused as to why someone would be turning down their business when everyone else would be fighting for yeah. it. But for me, it was valuable, right? For me, you look and go, this is going to be a broken relationship. Maybe I'll have some upside up front and maybe we'll make a few bucks, but it's not going to be a, a good relationship. Do you think that's interesting? That wasn't even about the property, right? Zero. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah had zero to do with the property. It, the only thing it had to do with the property, Rebecca, was the fact that they considered it their beach home, which, which typically my guess is if we would have went in to do an ex inspection, it would have been full of their thing. So people on vacation would have felt more like they were at someone's beach house rather than they were in a vacation rental that was suited towards a professional vacation rental experience. You mentioned three different things. Is that kind of how you're feeling this process out a little bit? Three strikes and you're out. If one thing is misaligned, is that worth a conversation to be like, hey, you're expecting this. Let me educate you <clears throat> on what this actually is. Is that more you're thinking at this point? Or? Yeah. So we have them rank their feelings from one to 10. Okay. So we can actually look at it and say, here's where we're close. Here's where we're far off. And even where we're far off, we'll start with a conversation, Conrad, to say, Hey, is there a way to close this gap? Here's where we stand and here's our reasoning. What are your thoughts on that? So we have a conversation to see if we can close the gap, but in some cases they're in, they have their mindset and it makes it easy. And again, it's easy for them and easy for us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What do you think the future holds with regards to the operational side of things? Is there stuff that you're working on now that you wish you maybe had done previously or things that you are looking forward to building that you're like, ah, when this is done, it's going to make my life a lot easier? Or do you think you figured out most of the big problems? I wish we would have done this owner approach before, right? Because so much time and energy is wasted on difficult owners. And the one thing that I wish I knew before that, that I know very firmly now is not all revenue is good revenue. That is the biggest thing that I can tell you that I'm carrying forward in, in everything we're doing, right? Is from being growth driven, right? And again, I've said that I've had to grow my way out of problems. When you're in that stage, revenue, it doesn't matter, right? If it's adding a dollar to the top line, you go get it, right? And you'll work it out below. And maybe, maybe I'm growing up at almost 48 years old, but I've really taken to not all revenue is good revenue. Yeah. It's, it's not all worth it because that dollar can cost either figuratively or literally cost more than a dollar. And, and I really take time to look at it and say, is that dollar worth it to me? Yeah. Yeah. Conrad, I'm sure you can sympathize with how the clients that are the lowest dollar or the highest maintenance sometimes. Sometimes it could, it could definitely be the case. It's not always the case. We have some large clients that demand a lot of time and attention, but I will say that you're correct, Rebecca, but here's what I've learned at least personally is that, okay, yes, it's still a pain in the tail to deal with this big client, but at least I'm getting compensated well for it. <laughs> so it's, even though it's a pain, I can, it's like that. It's like that gif or of, I think it's Woody Harrelson in the movie and he's wiping the tears with a hundred dollar bills. So it's at least I'm sad and miserable, but I have the money to make up for it. <laughs> 
you could charge a PETA fee, yeah, right? Yeah, PETA. I've said that's a PETA. I've said that's a PETA. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Scott could do that. Scott's going to read the personality index yeah. and be like, "You're going to you're going to get charged a PETA fee, yeah. your owner." Oh, I've sent out yeah. I've sent out PETA proposals before, Rebecca. Where it's like, we typically charge this, but I can sense from you that you're going to get this and this. Give me a giant pain yeah. in the. This is a fifty percent boost. <laughs> but it's a fifty percent boost because to your point, though, Scott. Back to the nature of it. One owner, like I've seen this. I've actually sat recently in the office. One of my clients. Who I don't often get this opportunity. We have so many clients are all over the US and it's not like I go sit in their office all the time. And in that, I was there about two hours, two and a half hours doing some bigger email marketing projects with one of their reservationists. But I saw the owners interact with the reservationist. I could tell immediately within the first nine seconds of picking up the phone, exactly how someone thought about that owner. Click open. Hey, Scott. Oh, how are you doing? What's going on? They love that owner. I can tell. Oh yeah, no problem. We'll get it out there. Oh yeah, no problem. And then I could tell it's like ringing. No one wants to pick it up. No one wants to pick it up. Then I finally saw someone pick it up. Hi, Grant, you know, the name of the company. Didn't even want to say what their name was. So it's like, you can just tell right away how people interact and the mood of the team and stuff like that was just fascinating to see in person and how they interact with a guest and how they interact with an owner. And uh, you could tell there was favorites that made their lives easier and gave them energy and things that were draining to them. And I think that's how I've thought about it before. Does this client forget the money for a second? Is it actually giving me energy or just draining my energy? And at some point, there's no much, there's not really an amount of money necessarily that makes it worth it to deal with bad people. I think that's maybe what you're saying, Scott. Not all revenue is equal because some of that yeah. revenue comes from people that you just don't really want to do business with. That's tough. Yeah, true. Um, gotcha. So I know we're maybe we have time for a few more. Rebecca, did you have anything on your side that we didn't quite get to yet? I know we got a little. Maybe yeah, so more. just to touch on a few things that we had talked about, I don't know what price point or average nightly rate those 20-something properties are, but I've been saying that I think service is the new luxury, like great service, top-notch service, world-class service is the new luxury. It's a lot easier to define that you feel like the service was impeccable. So when you look at those properties and you look at service, like how do you think your previous experiences have tallied up to put your mindset that way? Because you talked about working at that for Craig, who had an outside independent resource with a ranking system. And that really drove you to want to perform better. Welcome to vacation rentals where <laughs> they're, they're really other than maybe hunter collection. There really isn't that. So how are you seeing service? Like what's driving you? And I know the answer has to do something to do with growing up in that nucleus of Orlando and hospitality being, you just breathe it in the air when you grow up there. So interested in your thoughts about that. It's funny. Right? So, so the property level, I think is the easiest, right? And Rebecca, from my perspective, it's making sure that the people know that they've been considered when they walk in and we, I have beaten this one to death, but it's something as easy as the occupancy, right? When you have this place that is set for 17 and you walk in and there's a table around for six, right? And there's no other chairs around. I think that's a missing piece, which immediately puts people on the Where's everyone else going to sit? And this fractured experience even together at the house. So we look at it as what's that experience for the family, that collective experience. And Rebecca, this goes to probably what triggered me with Brad when I came over and really started to build on this is one of Brad's things was he wanted to help people go on vacation that made memories that lasted a lifetime. And you and I both know that's very much what we live in Orlando. Right. That memories that last a lifetime. And it's funny, I, like, I get goosebumps now. I feel a tremendous duty to make that happen. Right. Because I know that there is something special to those moments. Right. And I think last week we talked a little bit about baby's first trip and grandma's last trip. I think there's a tremendous responsibility for us to meet those things right where they are and to know that 
We may not know what's happening, but this is a special thing for them, right? There is something special. And whether they paid on the tan side, if they paid a few hundred dollars to be there, that doesn't matter because that's their hard-earned money. Or they're spending $20,000 for the week on the high end. That's their hard-earned money. And Rebecca, for me, I go back to, and this is a simple thing, but it's something that, that I believe in. One of my things as I've come up is with no college, I've had to work to get everything that I have, right? Frontline, sleeves up, working, right? When I was running the cleaning company, I cleaned with the cleaners, right? I ran units with the maintenance guys. I worked for every dollar that I have. So I look at that and say, I know how hard I worked and how much I value it. And the last thing I'm going to do is let people waste their money with us when they travel. I am all about that experience. One of the biggest things where I think I really focus on is when you have two, two units side by side or in the same complex, I think it's super important. And will they be identical and absolutely standard? No, because it's different owners and everyone's got their different style, but we owe it to people when they come in, if a group goes together, they should all have the same experience, right? If you take someone and the three of us are traveling, we each get a different unit. I end up with the great unit. Rebecca, you end up with pretty close to mine. Conrad ends up with the other one. Con- right? Conrad's immediately pissed, right? It doesn't matter. So for me, it, it's transparency is the biggest thing, right? Let the pictures tell the story, but then just deliver on those things. Rebecca, back to unreasonable hospitality. If you, What am I trying to do now that will take it to the next step? One of the things I loved about that book is when they talked about delivering the check at the end of the meal is their most precarious moment. So I have sat down and I have a list that's probably now, I don't know, it's 10 or 12 things. And I keep asking myself, what's our precarious moment with the owner, with the guest? right? And with anyone else involved. And I keep trying to solve it, right? I keep, for me, our precarious moment is it's not when they pay, right? They're still excited when they pay. They're on a high. Our precarious moment is hit the code, open the door, right? That's the moment. So I've been trying to figure out right through Point Central or right other technology to say, Conrad has opened the door. How do you hit him at that moment to say, you're there, is it everything you expect? And if not, how can I help? In the book, they left a full bottle of bourbon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah and, and very expensive bourbon because someone then had to pick it up to pour it and the check was under. <laughs> I, re- I heard this a while ago on a Heather Bayer podcast. I have no idea when what episode this with, with this one was, so don't ask me to put it in the show notes. But she talked about with her properties being very remote out in the cottage country of Ontario, Canada. When she you would walk in, all the lights would be on. And music would be playing and that's that sounds simple enough yeah. like that doesn't take a lot of skill to do that but the cleaner would depart the property and leave all the lights on and the music on so when you walked in there'd be almost like this ambiance kind of feeling that you were walking into something cool and special i have no idea how you do that and actually get the music right that was the question i had was like how do you make sure you don't put something on that people would dislike? <laughs> not maybe you just pick like almost elevator type music so at least something's on but it's not offensive to everybody but I, I thought that was an interesting simple thing because a lot of people will talk about stuff like that they'll talk about perks inside the property and there's something to be said for that maybe in some cases i actually recall this experience 
NWVRP, I think three years ago, they left a bottle of wine in the room. I just don't drink. So for me, I was like, for someone that meant a lot, for me, it meant nothing. So I gave it to someone who was able to enjoy it and that was fine. But I was like, if they had actually left a Coke Zero in there, that would have been like, I would have been like, oh my God, they <laughs> know me. It. So even though it was actually a cheaper product, it's the thing that I actually consumed. So it would have been, it would have spoke to me. So that's the piece that I think would be fascinating to try to figure out that moment is that how do you make it right for that specific person? That would be the thing that would really, I think, trip it off is that yeah. if you walked in and you were a Ravens fan and the game was on the next day, they check in on Saturday, the Ravens game on Sunday, you go, hey, the Ravens game is going to be on channel eight and here's a cupcake and it's got Lamar Jackson on it or something. That's the kind of thing that someone would be like, oh my God, that's amazing. Other people would be like, they wouldn't care. So that's how do you find that so, balance? I think I think in the book, they called them dream weavers. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah, they actually, so you could hire a Dreamweaver. Explain that, Rebecca. What is that, a Dreamweaver? A Dreamweaver is somebody who literally eavesdrops at, on the table conversation, picks up what the favorite baseball game or need or interest yeah. is, and then goes out and gets it. So like in one instance, they were sad to leave for the airport having not gotten a true New York hot dog. So the guy literally runs out the front door, buys a New York hot dog off the vendor, and brings it in. Another guy was hoping to close a deal with hundred grand and they left a hundred grand candy bar under his chair. Very, like you said, very personalized. catered. Yeah, yeah, personalized for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think that, I don't think it's rough for us to get there. And I'll tell you, and, and I am, I'm really enjoying the relationship with Steve Schwab. He and I are pretty amazingly aligned, but he, they, we do ask some questions as they're booking, right? Are you there to celebrate an event and all that stuff? I think we've got to find a way to go deeper because I do think there can be that personalized service there. I think in Conrad, we talked about this on the last episode and Rebecca, I know this will rest in your mind too. The ability for them to feel recognized. And I think it's recognizing them as a first time guest or a repeat guest, right? Or a multi time guest for them to feel that welcome. So in, when I was working with Craig, one of the things we had is we serviced the Disney cruise line. So we used to get on Disney cruises all the time. And the most amazing thing about a Disney cruise is you're walking around and you can pass someone on your floor that works there that you've never interacted with and they know you in which cabin you're in. And it is the most amazing thing, right? And again, it's just that moment of you feel recognized and you feel special. Right. You're, the wait staff on the Disney cruise, we haven't been on one in a long time, but they follow you to the different restaurants every night. Right. And all they do the first night and Rebecca, this was an unreasonable hospitality, too, is they have a conversation with you, ask you what you like, what you don't like. How about this? Are you willing to take risks? You never have to order again for your entire cruise. They go, oh, hey, I thought about something special for you tonight from the kitchen. Right. And they bring you something that they put together based on their conversation with you the first night you met them. So I, I do think, and I really think that we as a industry can find our way to that type of interaction and intimacy with our guests to say, we can have this set for you, whether it's an event or whether it's just to recognize that you're back with us again. How do we take that to the next yeah. level? Awesome. I want to round out. I want to finish this out, Scott, with a story. Give us a story of something like your craziest operation story or the biggest problem you've had to deal with or something that really sticks out in your mind, even if it's a long time later, What's something you're going to tell your grandkids about one day about, oh, oh, it was so man. crazy. We had to deal with this. What's this? Man. Oh man. I don't even, the airlines, the airlines was a crazy time. So for me in the airlines, when I went over to AirTran, I had to, I had to pick up a bunch of departments as they were having issues. And I will say the craziest time that I ever experienced in the airlines was when I 
was over the security side. So the TSA side of the business, the regulatory side. And I'll never forget this day. And it's famous and infamous all in the same time. I was, my daughter got a Hello Kitty. Maddie's now 22. So she was, man, she was 10, 11, 12, maybe even younger than that. She wanted a Hello Kitty Nintendo thing. We got her the wrong one for Christmas. So her and I are at the Toys R Us in Douglasville, Georgia, replacing it because we got the wrong one. And I get a call that there had been an incident in DCA of taking some people off an airplane because they had made a joke about a bomb and there was a bunch of federal air marshals on the airplane. So they stepped in. And then it, they had cleared the people go to come back and now they're raising hell with the gate agent. So I get this call and I was the decision maker for whatever's going on. If we were going to deny boarding to someone, it would have to come across me. So I'm literally standing there trying to find the right Hello Kitty thing. And I get a call. They fill me in on the backstory. And I said, you know what? Hey, just deny them boarding. Ready? We're headed for the wrong way here. So just deny them boarding, give them a full refund and send them on their way. The next morning I go to work, we had a 8.30 daily meeting, the entire company. I'll never forget it. I opened my laptop and AirTran is on the front page of all of the news because we had denied boarding and the people claimed it was because of their race and ethnicity. And that, and we went through a ton about this and the craziest and best part, right? And you just think about how you look at things. I never knew their name. I never knew anything about them. I simply knew here's a bunch of facts and what do you do? And I had to choose to do the right thing for the safety of the agents that were there and the safety for the people on the flight. Listen, there was no fear that they had something or they were going to do anything dangerous, but it was that moment to say, it's not worth it. It's not worth the compromise, the experience of the other people on the flight this and the crew around yeah. them. But that was, to this day, that's probably the craziest, biggest thing that I touched and didn't even know I was touching until that next morning. I'll never forget flipping up on my laptop and be like, oh, this is going to leave a mark. This is going to be something to yeah. explain. <laughs> Ultimately, it, talk, it tells me a bit about here's the methodology, here's the approach we're going to take. And yeah, we're not bending to someone lying. It's here's the truth, here's the facts. And that's the way you handle things. Yeah. And as you say, Scott, you're a simple man, maybe, but also a straight shooter. So we appreciate it. I think we can put a bow on this one. Um, this this was fun, obviously a different format than what we're used to. Anything else, Rebecca, or should we tie a bow and put it on this one for right now? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much. This yeah. is great. Thanks, Rebecca, for joining yeah. us. Really appreciate it. Having the co-host in the chair. Scott was on the hot seat, but hopefully we didn't make him too uncomfortable today. He's smiling. So I think we did all right. And please do leave us a review if you have the chance. Leave a review and tell us your crazy story, maybe about short-term rental operations and or your career. It'd be fun to compare what Scott's done, what had to deal with what you might have had to deal with. Um, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Don't worry about that. It might be a bit of a different format too. Maybe you'll hear from Adam. We'll see how things go. And we'll nice. catch everyone on the next episode. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks.